These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. So I should perhaps explain myself, because I'm not sure if I ever explained my intentions when I started this mini-series on Canaan. What I really want to do is tell the myths of Canaan. I wanted to do that for so many reasons, partly because it gives more context to the emergence of the people of Israel when we get to the Iron Age, partly because it tells us a lot about how these people thought and uh, who lived right in the middle of the Mesopotamian, Hittite, Hurrian, and Egyptian spheres. It tells us how they saw the world, and, you know, mostly because this is the oldest stories. And the whole point of this show, back before it somehow became a history podcast without me realizing it, was to read and discuss the writings and literature of the ancient world. But to read literature without historical context is nothing but masturbation, the basest of self-pleasure, best undertaken alone in a quiet room, not in a podcast listened to by literally dozens of people every week. And so before we get to the myths of Canaan, we need to look at the city which produced them, Ugarit. And before we discuss Ugarit, we kind of needed those two previous episodes to set the stage for Canaan as a whole. And also, you know, I, I kind of like history. And so what probably could have been a short summary has ballooned into whatever this episode has become. Now, Ugarit is interesting all by itself. The city, unlike nearly all other Canaanite sites, was abandoned in the Bronze Age collapse and essentially never resettled, giving archaeologists full access to whatever was left behind in the city around 1180, when the last resident fled in terror. Sadly, despite having the full city to excavate, the beginning of the story of Ugarit is disappointingly sparse. We know that the city was inhabited around the same time as the oldest Canaanite cities. Not quite as old as Byblos, but still, it was a power in its own little region. We know that by 2400 BCE, it was a significant enough city to show up in the archive at Ebla, and managed not to get conquered by the growing kingdom, despite being much closer to Ebla than the rest of Canaan, though whether it was strong enough to resist Eblaite intimidation, or simply far enough away that it wasn't worth the effort, is unclear. The early Bronze Age throughout Canaan is tough to get too deep into anywhere, but Ugarit, like other Canaanite cities, was prosperous, but not as prosperous as Byblos, at least as far as we can tell. One indicator here is that Ugarit, despite being much closer to the Euphrates than any other Canaanite city, does not show up in the surviving archives from the final Sumerian dynasty at Ur while Byblos and potentially a few other trading ports do, suggesting that Ugarit was less important for Mesopotamian traders at this point. But still, Ugarit follows the general cultural trends. Canaan, in general, may have adopted a variety of phonetic alphabets based on their contact with Egypt and Mesopotamia in the early Bronze Age, and Ugarit follows its direct neighbors by developing its own 30-character alphabet based off cuneiform symbols. 
the close of the Early Bronze Age is also the close of an era for Ugarit. As the city comes under Amorite domination sometime around 2000 BCE. It's actually possible that it is with this conquest that the city gets its name Ugarit, and that previously it bore some other name. But that's a rather little obscure scholarly debate. Whatever the fact of the matter, this new Amorite dynasty would prove to be a great boon for the city, with kings of the Amarna period still claiming to be descendants of these invaders nearly a millennium later. Our information on the kings of this city in the Middle Bronze Age, and even into much of the Late Bronze Age, is scanty enough that we can't really evaluate whether this claim is true, uh, whether there really was a somewhat continuous dynasty, or if this was just something that was claimed for political purposes. The population of the city, if it changed at all, did not change in a way detectable in the archaeological record. Now, this does happen sometimes. People move in and continue to make the same kind of pots and architecture as the people they displaced. But it does suggest that whatever population movements were occurring in the city were gradual and integrated into the city rather than revolutionizing things. As Egypt was expanding its presence in Canaan more generally, Ugarit was far enough north that none of the official expeditions ever seemed to reach it. Still, traders went back and forth freely, and there are Middle Kingdom Egyptian artifacts that have been excavated from various points around the city. Most interestingly, there were a number of images of the pharaohs and the Egyptian royal ladies which were discovered beheaded, and while the exact circumstances of this statue mutilation remain unclear, it's clear enough that Ugarit at some point in this period had enough of pro-Egyptian sentiment to accept and be sent gifts from the Nile, and then at some point had enough anti-Egyptian sentiment to symbolically execute these same gifts. Now, were these two distinct periods in the city's history, or was there a time in the Middle Bronze Age when the question of whether to be pro- or anti-Egyptian was splitting the politics of the city? Whatever the case, the first known ally that Ugarit would have, at the same time as Egyptian influence was creeping up the Mediterranean coast, was the Yamhad dynasty in Aleppo, forming a sizable Syrian state just around the time Babylon was rising in Mesopotamia. The nature of the alliance is unclear, but while it is likely that Ugarit was a junior partner to the Syrian kingdom, it doesn't appear to have been a full vassal, or at least it has not been established yet that Ugarit was ever formally part of Aleppo's kingdom. Our best source from this period is actually from King Zimri-Lim of Mari, another junior partner of Yamhad, where he takes a trip out west to Ugarit, which is documented in no less than 80 various items that have survived to the current day out of Mari's famous archives. With all that, though, we don't even learn the name of the king of Ugarit at the time. Instead, we learn that it was a prosperous trading hub where various kings from around the region kept their own private warehouses to participate in the buying and selling of goods. Aside from confirming the general picture that we get in other periods, very little gets illuminated on Ugarit here.
the destruction of Aleppo by the rising Hittite empire of Hattushili and Mershili ends the Yamhad dynasty. But the fighting never seems to reach down to Ugarit, and Mershili's Hittite kingdom falls into infighting only a few short years after his great sack of Babylon in 1595 BCE, sparing Ugarit from further threat. The Hurrian migrations appear to largely skip over Ugarit, as our documentary evidence shows far fewer Hurrian names in the city than in other Syrian and North Canaanite towns. The 1500s were a tough time for all the major powers that Ugarit depended on to keep the trade routes clear of bandits. But as we know from the main course of episodes, soon enough, the Marianu charioteers arrived from the northeast and created a Hittite king of Matani. Like with Yamhad, it isn't clear how attached Ugarit ever got to this confederation, though they likely counted as being in the general Mitanni sphere for at least a good century at the opening of the Late Bronze Age. Now, these centuries are Dark Ages in general, and the, poor, the Mitanni were poor record keepers in addition, and so it's perhaps a little surprise that there's not much we can say about this period. Soon enough, however, the year is 1440 BCE, and Pharaoh Tutmos III is marching up the Canaanite coastline. Now, it's disputed how far north he got on the coast itself. Some think the Ugarit may have fallen under Egyptian influence at this time. If not actually reached by the armies of Tutmos or his direct successors, it may have offered some sort of submission voluntarily. However, the very few indications of submission to Egypt are hotly contested in archaeological circles, and while it certainly reaches the attention of Egypt in this period, it's far enough north that it never really seems to fall wholly into Egyptian territory. Which is a bit of a problem, I mean, for us in the podcast. Ugarit's probably quite happy about that. Recall that our definition of Canaan was the places that fell under Egyptian domination, and even theorized that the idea of Canaan could have developed as a mix of Levantine culture with Egyptian influences. If Canaan had nothing to do with Egypt aside from the historical coincidence of getting conquered, we still have the problem that Ugarit is well north of any reasonable definition of Canaanite territory. Why, then, are we so dependent on Ugarit to tell us about Canaan? Ultimately, the exact relationship between Ugarit and their Canaanite neighbors to the south is actually highly uncertain. But at the very least, we know they spoke very similar languages. We know they worshipped gods with similar names, often the exact same gods, and had similar economic systems, at least with the coastal Canaanite towns. Also, we know that Ugarit had close ties with Sidon, Tyre, and Beirut at the very least, and there's some indication that it may have been seen as a northern Canaanite outpost city. Yet ultimately, we need to keep in mind as we move forward in the Ugarit series that we are considering Ugarit as Canaanite simply because we don't have anything closer to real Canaan that provides us with anywhere near this level of cultural and social detail. 
Now, with that in mind, Ugarit was hit by a pretty devastating earthquake around 1365 BCE, which destroyed a good chunk of the city. But things were generally prosperous, and they were able to rebuild quickly, though many archives were lost from before that time. Relations with Egypt seem to have grown closer, and Ugarit may even have sent a bride to Amenhotep III. In the Amarna letters, they're featured five times, and in them, Ugarit seems to mix and match the courtesies of a vassal with the courtesies found in great power correspondence. The two kings of Ugarit who feature in the letters, Amitamru and Nikmadu, both begin by saying they fall at the pharaoh's feet seven times and seven times, and call him a king, the sun god, and my lord. All these features are regularly seen in vassal letters and indicate a subservient position, the quite reasonable recognition that Egypt is vastly more powerful than Ugarit. At the same time, however, the Ugarit kings wish well on the pharaoh's household. Additionally, they include greeting gifts and discuss the gifts they would like in exchange from the pharaoh, both of which indicate a position outside of the vassalage network, which where the Ugarit kings are exchanging gifts freely with Egypt, not sending tribute and begging for patronage. Was Ugarit an Egyptian vassal during the Amarna period? Was it perhaps part of the Egyptian sphere of influence, but not formally incorporated? Was it perhaps still part of the Mitanni, but dealing as a respectful inferior with Egypt for trade and diplomatic purposes? Some have even considered that Ugarit may have been completely independent, but in truth that almost certainly overstates things. The sort of independence we usually think of nowadays probably wasn't an option for non-great powers in the ancient world, at least not in the context of the late Bronze Age Levant. Anyway, whatever their specific status was, it ended soon after the Amarna period. Now, one of the great narratives of the Amarna period was the rise of the kingdom of Amaru, ruled first by the conqueror Abdiashurta and later by his son Aziru. This small kingdom is actually the last gasp of the Amorites, who had, 700 years previously, so completely rewritten the map of the Near East. But by the late Bronze Age, the Amorite rulers of Mesopotamia, who had ruled all the kingdoms of the Isin-Larsa period as those kingdoms ate each other up, finally submitting to the rule of Hammurabi's Amorite dynasty in the Old Babylonian period, and they've all been defeated. And in the south, they were replaced by the Sealand dynasty, which was native Sumerian, while in the north, they were replaced by the Kassite dynasty, immigrants into the Mesopotamian region. In Assyria, the Amorite descendants of Shamsi Adad had been replaced by native Assyrian rulers once again as they emerged from Mitanni domination. And in Canaan itself, a mixture of Hurrian and native Canaanite rulers had mostly taken over. The kingdom of Amaru, then, is the last place these conquering people were collected in a distinct population. But, much to the dismay of the Canaanite kings around them, 
for a good two decades in the Amarna period, they were able to show the Levant why they had been so feared throughout the Near East. Perhaps more impressively, they were able to do it for the most part without angering the Pharaoh, at least not until the kingdom was well and truly established. Now, Ugarit in all this was never defeated by the Amorites, but it was surrounded and forced into a subservient alliance by the end of the Amarna period. When relations between Egypt and Amaru finally turned sour, Ugarit was forced to follow their local overlord and came under the wing of the conquering Hittite king Shapililiuma I for protection from the now irritated Egyptians. Though this decision seems to have been a worrying and difficult one, it turned out about as well as Ugarit could possibly have hoped. Not only did Shapililiuma turn out to be a fantastic king, growing the borders and stabilizing the Hittite kingdom better than any previous great king had managed, but also the 18th dynasty chose this particular time to collapse, ending any serious threat against the Canaanite rebels for at least a generation. Still, even though Ugarit was now safe in great power terms, it was not safe from more local concerns. Sometime after coming under Hittite protection, a group of other Levantine petty kingdoms, led by the Nuhashi, began attacking Hittite vassals in Syria as part of an anti-Hittite campaign. While we discussed the larger implications of this back in the Hittite series, Locally, it proved to be disastrous for the nearby cities, as there were no Hittite troops nearby to assist, the great king being distracted in other parts of the empire. The upshot is that possibly the greatest palace of the Mediterranean coast, the 7,000 square meter palace at Ugarit, was at least half consumed by fire. Now, this place was so rich that the Amarna letters have other Canaanite kings discussing it as the gold standard of opulence. It held some 90 rooms just on the first floor, and likely extended to at least a second story, though up to four stories is entirely possible given the construction. It had five great courtyards, a massive garden, and a large, ornamental, multi-tiered decorative pool with flowing water in it even. Ah, that was quite a feat. Not only was the secular business of government conducted here, but a whole system of education was in place to train the next generation of scribes within the palace itself. The quality of the stonework is still impressive, even after having been destroyed twice and left to lay fallow for 3,000 years. And all this was destroyed just to play a single small move in a larger anti-Hittite strategy. Typical history. Gotta go war with people instead of building nice things. That's just how people are. Curiously, even though they were suffering from being part of the Hittite sphere of influence, in 1340 BCE, they made the decision to join the Hittite Empire more formally and entered into a vassalship treaty which would bind the city until its ultimate destruction a century and a half later. 
The pressure on Ugarit's king Nikmadu must have been immense, with various neighbors of various size and destructiveness all pointing him in different directions. But it may have been the energy and success of Shapiluliuma I that ultimately convinced him that the Hittites were here to stay. This may well have been the first tribute-paying vassal relationship that Ugarit had ever been in, and the burden was high, payable in huge sums of gold, dyed wool, and garments. But as Shapiluliuma's campaigns progressively destroyed his and Ugarit's enemies in western Syria, Ugarit in turn was rewarded for steadfast loyalty with increased territory, generally taken from anti-Hittite neighbors. Under Nikmadu and Ugarit and Shapiluliuma up in Hattusha, Ugarit ruled over its largest known territorial extent, just over 2,000 square kilometers around a bend of the Orontes River. By the time Nikmadu died, around 1350 BCE, he had apparently been a bit neglectful in his duties to his Hittite overlords, apparently being reticent with troops in one of the many campaigns of Shipiliuma, and as a result, a few of his southern villages were allowed to become independent Hittite vassals. Aside from this little territory loss, uh, upon his death, he did pass quite a prosperous little city-state on to a fellow named Arhalba when he died. It isn't clear why Arhalba was chosen, since he bears a non-Semitic name, suggesting that he was not, in fact, part of the royal bloodline. He seems to have had undisguised pro-Egyptian sympathies and may have been party to some dark, unspeakable scandal regarding morals that's only even hinted at in the sources. They seem to suggest that it's too horrible of whatever he did to even write it down. He ruled for a very short time before the Hittites either deposed him or he may have been killed by other people in the Ugarit royal court. And when Nikmadu's son Nikmepa takes the throne in 1313, he leaves some strong condemnations of his brief predecessor and possible brother before getting to the business of ruling in earnest. With Nikmepa now in power in Ugarit and Mershali II up in power up in Hattusha, both the monarch who had negotiated the previous hittite ugarit treaty had passed away, and it was time for the treaty to be refreshed. Interestingly, it seems that as negotiations began, Ugarit was sued by the powers both to the north and to the south, claiming rights to parts of Ugarit's territory. Presiding over the question at court in Hattusha, Mershali II ultimately decided in favor of Ugarit on the northern front, but in favor of allowing some of its southern villages to split away from the king of Ugarit, to become independent vassals answerable to the viceroy in Karchemish. Now, we like the details of these lawsuits, so we don't actually know if this was decided just as a political measure or if Mershali was in fact judging the cases fairly on their merits, but it is interesting to note that within the Hittite Empire, Syrian vassals had moved from fighting each other to suing each other in the court of their common overlord. I have 
a remarkable personal distaste for lawyering in general, but this is undoubtedly a win for peace, prosperity, and the rule of law as the late Bronze Age begins to peak. Still, just because this sort of lawfare occurred in some cases does not mean that Ugarit was wholly safe from actual warfare, you know, bandits, skirmishes, raids, and border clashes. Though it had initially been forced into becoming Amaru's junior partner, the fact is that the arrangement was serving both parties quite nicely. Amaru was specialized in warfare, and Ugarit was specialized in creating wealth. And so, transferring huge sums of gold every year in exchange for what appears to have been fairly active local protection by the soldiers of nearby Amaru was a win-win. And over the next two generations, both Ugarit kings will take Amorite wives to cement the alliance between the two states. It will become such a powerful little block within the subject territories of the Hittite Empire that great kings in Hattusha will occasionally look on it with a bit of suspicion. But overall, things are going to go well for a while. At least, until Pharaoh Seti I, in the opening years of the newly formed 19th dynasty of Egypt, marched up Canaan and reconquered Amaru. Though Ugarit was far enough north that they were able to stay safely within Hittite territory, this chain of events would ultimately culminate in the famous Battle of Kadesh. After this, the Hittites recovered both Kadesh and Amaru once again, and the Syrian border would begin to settle down for the first time in basically all of history, and it would continue to be settled until pretty much the end of the Bronze Age. Even though things are settled, however, we actually get many more tiny dramas and details than ever before. Not because more was happening necessarily, but because we're now in the final century of the city's life. And in a living city, people just tend to lose or destroy records more often the older they get. I mean, think of how many documents your family has from the last decade compared to 100 years ago, and realize that generally the people of Ugarit were no different. Those tiny dramas, however, are going to have to wait until whenever the next episode comes out, because what was intended as a single episode summarizing Ugarit has ballooned yet again. Who knows when it'll get done? Maybe next episode. We'll see. Ugarit, turns out, has a lot of history. Thank you for listening.